The Start On Demand. Hey, it's Brett. It's the Thursday edition of the podcast for The Start with Mackling, McNabb, and McGarry. An airborne garbage fight. Or trash in the sky. Call it whatever you want. Woman got kicked off an Air Canada flight over a dispute over garbage. So we're going to hear from her. She spoke with Global News, and then we're going to hear from the air passenger rights advocate who is fighting for her on her behalf. Also, cannabis confusion. It's legal next week, and they're already saying there might be a shortage almost immediately after it goes live here in Manitoba. How old is too old to trick or treat? There's a town in Virginia that is, it's in the law. You can go to jail if you are over the age of 12 and you are caught trick-or-treating. Go to jail for up to six months. Small town salute. We're going to Lockport. I went to Lockport a couple of weeks ago and that got McNabb thinking, you know what? I don't really know a lot about Lockport, so let's go there for the small town salute. And now after doing the small town salute, I want to go back to Lockport because I am suddenly very hungry for hot dogs. Knickers and Kickers. It's one of our big fundraising events that we help Silo Mission with every year. They need new underwear and socks for the people they serve. It's coming up next week, so we're going to tee up that event. And a zombie outbreak in Gimli. We'll tell you about this wild event that is happening over the weekend. It sounds like a ton of fun for some Halloween spookiness. been sharing with you this morning the story of a New Brunswick woman who says she was kicked off an Air Canada flight in August following an alleged dispute over garbage. 71-year-old Ellen Fleming says it all started when she noticed some garbage in the pouch in front of her seat after she boarded the plane. I asked him if he would remove if he could remove that garbage because it was wet and I, I just wanted to put my water bottle in and he just stood up tall and said I'm a flight attendant. I don't do garbage. After that, she says she tried to put the garbage in the cart and alleges the flight attendant swiped at her hand, causing the garbage to go flying. When two other flight attendants approached her to try and talk about it, she says she kept her eyes closed, saying she just wanted to de-escalate the situation. Well, the exact opposite happened, in fact. Short time later, the plane was turned around and Fleming was forcibly removed from the plane. Fleming went to air passenger rights advocate Gabor Lukacs because she says she was assaulted by a flight attendant. She wrote to Air Canada looking for further explanation. They replied with their own letter and their own version saying she was aggressive and kicked at the flight attendant. Gabor Lukacs joins us now. Gabor, what do you make of this? I looked at the letter and this is actually a backdated letter that Air Canada sent. They put August 30th as the date, which makes it look like it was sent as a direct response to Ellen's complaint to Air Canada on the 29th. But actually, the letter was not posted until mid-September. Ellen uh, was actually assaulted on board by a flight attendant. I've seen a photo of the bruise on her arm caused by the injury as a result. And uh, I've spoken to passengers who were sitting around and who confirmed that Alan has been throughout the process, been uh, defensive, respectful, professional, and it was a flight attendant who was aggressive and assaulted her. 
Gabor, how many times have you seen this this type of alleged behavior from flight attendants or flight attendants in Canada? Unfortunately, flight attendants do uh, abuse occasionally passengers, but it is a very rare situation that it gets so bad as a physical assault. And I would like to also say that the vast majority of flight attendants whom I have heard about or met are very nice, helpful, and friendly people. So this is clearly a rotten apple in the, in, in a pile of very nice people who are spending day and night serving passengers. What is troubling here is how the airline is, in this case Air Canada, is tolerating this kind of behavior. Gabor, it seems to me as though if Air Canada sincerely felt as though this woman had done anything to warrant the plane being turned around, either police or their lawyers would have found reason to either press charges or maybe go after this woman for some sort of punitive damages. Nothing of the sort has happened. Has she even been banned from flying Air Canada based on this? Air Canada told her at the airport that she would never be flying again, but in the writing, they confirmed that she was not banned from flying on Air Canada, and the police found no criminal activity. Peel Police, uh, the Toronto Regional Police out there, said that they didn't find any reason to charge either sizes. There was nothing, either sides, nothing that warranted charges. What do you think could change this? Would it help to have surveillance cameras on the plane or anything that would make a difference so that when passengers or flight attendants have concerns, because I'm sure there's abusive situations going the other way sometimes, would cameras make a difference? What, what do you think would work? Uh, I would say that flight attendants wearing a body camera, like police officers do in some places, would make a good um, difference, make a big change, because ultimately the flight attendants are in far bigger position of power than passengers are. Passengers on board are very much like subjects, and the pilot in command on a flight is like a peace officer. So the crew who is doing what the pilot says Uh, have tremendous power over the passengers. So it's first and foremost, the interaction between the flight attendants and passengers have to be recorded, and body cameras on flight attendants would make a big difference. So Gabor, what's next then for Ms. Fleming? What steps does she plan to take? That is something we are still reviewing. We will be approaching Air Canada with the information that we have and with the uh, evidence that we have of what happened. We are also concerned that, that the appeal police was not thoroughly investigating this matter because my understanding is that the police did not actually speak to witnesses who offered to provide statements to the police about Ellen having been assaulted. And miraculously, it sounds, it appears that those people were not interviewed. Gabor Lukacs, air passenger rights advocate, joining us on the start on 680 CJOB. The headline at CJOB.com, the flight that turned this grandmother's life around. A woman says Air Canada unfairly kicked her, her off plane. We have linked that story to the 680 CJOB Instagram story for this morning. We told you yesterday morning, at this time in fact, about an event happening at Portage in Maine, getting through the intersection on a wheelchair. The Winnipeg Trails Association hosted the event at 10 a.m. yesterday. They put out a wheelchair, allowing anyone who wanted to try to have a seat and give it a shot. So we spoke with Alan Mankiewicz, one of the organizers. He does use a wheelchair. He previewed the event. 
on the news with Richard Cloutier and Julie Buckingham yesterday afternoon. They found out how the event went with one of the other organizers, Anders Swanson with the Winnipeg Trails Association. In case you missed that conversation. It took 14 and a half minutes for one person to cross from one building to another. So this was from 201 Portage to the Bank of Montreal building. So that's longer than somebody's coffee break if they had to go pick up cash before they go and get a coffee. Um, and then it took uh, seven and a half minutes to do that at street level. And, but of course, to cross the street takes maybe 18 seconds. So that's why uh, when people are talking about Portage Main as an accessibility issue um, and, and talking about, you know, we're leaving people out and it's really all of us because I plan on growing old one day. Um, that it's a, a, a really a, a different kind of discussion you're having. It's about people's freedom. Were you surprised at how long it took? Uh, yeah, actually, I was surprised by a lot of things um, doing that. Uh, so, like, from on a personal level, I don't know if you've ever, like, gotten in a wheelchair before, but obviously, you know, you, you feel differently. You have this idea that, you know, people are looking at you, you know, this kind of thing. Um, but um, even just navigating some of the simple things, like there's little ramps and just, like, even, for example, looking for the map in order to figure out how to get there, the map was at the bottom of stairs where you could see it, but you couldn't get to it in order to see the map in order to figure out how to get. So yeah, no, it just, it just, it makes me, it, 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 what really surprised me was just how strongly it made me feel actually and how upset uh, it made me feel. I, I wasn't expecting that. I was more curious and of course we're doing this as an experiment, but yeah. As for what others had to say? Well, uh, you know, we had one TV reporter who tried and he's been following this story closely and he was asking asking more about, you know, the other stuff like uh, traffic delays and and this kind of thing. And, and he said what, what, what it made him realize is, first of all, there's a lot more people involved when you talk about traffic than what's actually being discussed. Um, so when people are worried about a traffic delay, which really there, there actually isn't a big delay if you look at the study into Portage and Maine. Most people are going to get no delay. Well, you're talking about people who um, are having a 15-minute delay just across the street. Not only that, but you're also giving up on the chance to have tens of thousands of people living right near that intersection, which basically makes their commute zero. And that's why our downtown, you know, is going to make money off of this so that we can fix all kinds of things. And so I guess what we, the conversation we ended up having was sort of, putting it into scale of, you know, what's a delay really mean? Like, and unt until you start thinking about, you know, uh, sort of transportation choice is a bigger thing. Um, and until somebody starts having, you know, a solution for sitting in traffic like everybody is right now and has been for the last 10, 20 years and getting worse, um, uh, you need to fix this just ba on basic principle alone and then for the health of the city is the conversation we end up having. Anders Swanson with the Winnipeg Trails Association after yesterday's wheelchair event at Portage and Maine. Someone uh, tweeting here, I always think about tourism and welcome pe welcoming people into my home and into my community as customer service, right? Uh, as hospitality. And here's, here's a tweet that caught my attention. We had a guest today from the U.S. She stayed at the Fairmont, Winnipeg, when she left the hotel to walk essentially across the street to our offices at 360 Main. She realized it was not possible to cross at street level. She went back to the hotel and took a cab. Really? Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. And then there were other people in the string of tweets that, that works at a, another, one person that works at another hotel downtown that said, yep, yeah, we have guests who uh, take a cab all the time when they want to go from our hotel to the Fairmont because they just cannot be bothered with uh, dealing with the underground. And, uh and you can scoff at those individuals all you want, but 
if it's not simple, uh, people get intimidated. It's also just confusing at the end of the day. Like I've talked to the bellhop there who served there for 40 years before the the intersection closed and then after, and he retired a few years ago. And the number of times he gets asked at the Fairmont or used to get asked, like, how do I get across the street? And you, and it's just not as simple as saying, go, go downstairs and go underground. And it's, it's three or four times as hard if you're in a wheel, wheelchair or using a cane or other. Just very quickly, Greg, Brent Bellamy put out a tweet as well. Uh, can you paraphrase that? Um, I can't. Okay. Well, I I'm, think... too, I'm, too, I'm too slow with well, my brain well, this morning. Well, it was something along the lines of we want to add, add maybe a 45-second delay. I got it. The average Winnipeg vehicle commute is 8 kilometers, taking 22 minutes. To save a few seconds off that, we asked people in a wheelchair to take almost 15 minutes to cross a 30-meter wide street. What we're seeing across the country clearly is licensed producers saying that they will have supply issues. Uh, They may not be able to commit to the entire supplies. I'm going to buy myself a bottle of gin. And then I'm going to call my buddy on the telephone and say... Mackling McGarry McNabb on the start on 680 CJOB. Greg Mackling, who is that? That is the legendary Ray Charles from 1966. A little help, some words from Deepak Anand yesterday on the news with Julian Richard. Anand is with Cannabis Compliance Inc. and tells us what Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries has confirmed in a written statement to us. Expect supplies of marijuana to be less than expected come next week. Oh boy. CJOB sent these, this and a series of other questions to Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries. And here's the question. What issue still, what issues still need to be worked out in the next couple of weeks to meet the 17th legalization date from an MBLL perspective? Here's the answer. Jeff Braun been sharing it with you this morning. As we get closer to legalization, there are still a number of issues that need to be worked out strictly from a Manitoba Liquor and Lotteries perspective. The top two issues are. Product availability. With cannabis becoming legal across the country on October 17th, we are anticipating that we will be receiving less product than requested. Two, coordination of product delivery and store construction inspection schedules. Timelines are very tight and we are working in a brand new industry without set standards relating to transportation, logistics, and inventory management. This is making it challenging for both distributors and retailers alike. So how does this happen a week from legalization? As mentioned, Deepak Anand is vice president with Cannabis Compliance Inc. They help retailers navigate the regulations involved in getting pot to the public. Provinces have set up supply agreements in Manitoba with with licensed producers that currently grow cannabis. They're federally licensed by Health Canada. And and Manitoba is one such province that has signed agreements with licensed producers. Um, In fact, in Manitoba, uh, there's going to be a private retail system, unlike some of the other provinces where the provinces are going to be in control of retail. What we're seeing across the country clearly is licensed producers saying 
that they will have supply issues. Uh, they may not be able to commit to the entire supplies that provinces like Manitoba and others have asked or requested from them via purchase orders. Um, so we're clearly seeing uh, seeing issues there. Um, you, you talked to some other provinces nationally. Uh, we saw New Brunswick very early come out and obviously set up cannabis NB stores, and they're expecting, I think, today in today's news, they said $45 million is what they're expecting in the, in the first month of legalization, which is quite significant. Uh, but what you're seeing here is provinces that got an early lead clearly signed some, some pretty attractive purchase orders, and I think you'll see those provinces get a significant amount of supply. In fact, New Brunswick had uh, set up agreements with uh, New Brunswick-based licensed producers. So I, in my mind, I think that was a, a smart move for New Brunswick to have done, whereas we saw Manitoba and other provinces come out a little bit late out the gate um, and set up supply agreements. So... Sorry, I lost my uh, lost my train of thought here. <laughs> so it sounds as though, and there are some current uh, concerns, Brett Loren, that perhaps that those who are already using medical marijuana could see their supply disrupted. Well, it seems to be. I mean, uh, you know, Health Canada has motivated or sort of given some advantages to licensed producers via a rebate and licensing fees if they are not sort of. Um, uh, supplying sort of recreational products. So, so in other words, if if a, if a producer only grows and supplies the medical market, they don't have to pay this uh, this cost for licensing fees that Health Canada has imposed on provincial, uh, sorry, on on licensed producers that supply to the retail market. So, uh, you know, that's clearly an advantage. I mean, will we see medical cannabis patients suffer as a result of legalization? You know, I, I certainly think there is a potential for that to happen. Uh, clearly, we've got a supply-demand imbalance, and I think licensed producers will be most motivated uh, to whoever pays them the most at this point. So uh, we may indeed see some medical cannabis users that are currently buying products through a licensed producer uh, potentially take a backseat post-legalization, which is, which is quite concerning. Am I alone in feeling as though this could go less smoothly than anyone may have hoped and maybe perhaps just as many of us might have ex- expected? Well, there's all sorts of rollout issues, right? You've got the supply, then you have the concerns from the medical marijuana users users who want that for for reasons to help with their anxiety or their pain or what have you. And then we also had the province speaking out yesterday about the idea that they're still waiting on the devices that might help police test, and they were waiting on dollars from the federal government that would allow them to purchase those tests, and that there's only so many of these devices available in Canada to begin with. So therefore, you know, everything's going to be a much slower rollout than anticipated. But I don't know. I don't know if I expected it to go any differently. I mean, we're we're entering completely uncharted territory here. So I don't know how you, I know how you can anticipate some things, but all of them, we don't know what the need's going to be in one week from now. We don't know if we're going to have lineups outside the stores and if you want to be growing excess amount of pot and then have that go to waste. Like, I, I don't know. I don't. If only there were other jurisdictions in North America <laughs> who've actually done this that we could have consulted with to find out how it all yes. went down and what they might have done differently and the problems that they encountered when they rolled out legalized marijuana. I guess with Canada being the first country in the world <laughs> to ever do this, I understand that, okay, I you know, things sarcasm. are bound to happen. I got it. I got it. But I, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like we, the, the last six months, ever since we knew that this was the date set, you know, in June, um, we knew it was coming. I feel like we knew it was coming and, and the delays and all the sort of um, concerns that people have 
have come true. Could you imagine if it had been July 1st? No. <laughs> what a mess. Yeah, it's going to be a boondoggle no matter what, but that would have been a oh, really boy. big boondoggle. Yeah, sure, the headline at CGOB.com, Manitoba may experience pot shortage when legalization happens, say experts. You can read that story. We've linked it to the 680 CJOB Instagram story for this morning. There is an interesting story at globalnews.ca as it pertains to a town in Virginia. They're threatening jail time for anyone trick-or-treating over age 12. Come on. Here's the scoop. Three weeks to go. Count from Sesame Street. And plenty of people already planning their transformation for Halloween night. On our annual Halloween costume shopping. Beat the rush before all the good costumes are gone. And while many are thrilled about trick-or-treating here in Philly. One day to just throw on something freaking awesome and have a great time. A town law in Chesapeake, Virginia has people talking and heads spinning. If you're over 12, you can't trick or treat. It's illegal. I think it's kind of absurd though to really enforce that. Wow, that's crazy. It might be good because some people do take advantage of it when they're a little bit older. The law, a misdemeanor, is posted clear as day on the town's website stating those 13 and over can face up to six months in jail and up to $100 in fines for engaging in, quote, the activity commonly known as trick-or-treat. Are they putting handcuffs on 18-year-old kids because they wanted to get Hershey's chocolate for free? There's no age limit or any restriction on trick-or-treating. That's here in Philly, though Philadelphia Police Captain Seku Kinnebrew says everyone should be aware of the city's curfew laws. If you're 16 and older, you can be out till 10. 14 to 15, you can be out till 9. And then 13 and under, you got to get in by 8. We found similar rules in many southern Jersey and northern Delaware cities as well. It's a school night anyway, so you have to get up early. But at least in our region, for those 13 and older, turning yourself into a conniving clown to get some candy won't land you in cuffs. Need to move to Philadelphia, because... I'm going to be out there getting me some candy, so. And I'm definitely over 13. <laughs> Lock them up! I hit turn off all the mics. Yeah, so oh. it is six months, potentially. Up to six months in jail for going to, out to trick-or-treat. What an, ama- an amazing town that must be if their big problem is throwing kids in jail for trick-or-treating. Yeah. The, the police got nothing maybe better the, to do. That's a great idea. Maybe the kids are just running wild and, like, <laughs> toilet papering all the trees and all the rest. Maybe that's what's happening. You know, I was listening to those uh, the breakdown on the curfews. What about the kids who are playing sports? Like, do all high school football games then uh, have to end before 8 o'clock? I suspect, like anything, Kelly, there's some modification to these rules, and whether you're with a parent or not probably changes things somewhat. Uh, Curfew, I think we could do a whole conversation on curfew and the benefits and and whether or not we should have a curfew. But why has this got under so so many people's skin to the point where somebody's complained enough about this that somebody thought it was politically ad advantageous to go on record and say let's create a law but it bugs people every 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 year around halloween there are facebook memes that go out or messages from people saying like that they don't like it when they see kids who are too old to be trick-or-treating mm. at their doors and there should be a limit on how old you can be to trick-or-treat because halloween's supposed to be for the little ones and so it is a debate there are people who say that they don't i've heard people say they don't who said that candy. where is it where's it written anywhere that halloween and trick-or-treating is for little kids I don't, only i have heard people say they don't hand out candy to people who look too old to be trick-or-treating so you deserve toilet paper around We have a golden rule at our house. If you come in a costume, and it doesn't matter what age you are, you get a treat. 
if you're not wearing a costume and it doesn't matter how young you are, then you have to do something to earn your treat. Like you have sing to come a song up with a or, yeah. Yeah, sing a song, do jumping jacks, do anything you want. But you're not going to get candy if you're not in a costume. I used to get harassed all the time because I was a tall kid. For, like Even from the time I was nine. Aren't you too old to be trick-or-treating? Yeah. Oh, so I'm that's nine. Mean. <laughs> and uh, what is that? Like, we all, uh, there are adults who spend the whole year planning costumes and getting really excited about this time of year. Like, are you to- too old at any age for Halloween? Yeah. I think the last time I went out when I was 13 and I, I was probably at that point, I felt, I even felt a little too old, you know, <laughs> being all the little kids around. And I think they were, it's, it can be intimidating, I think, for the little kids when they see a bigger kid. With all the trouble that older kids could get into, yeah. and we're going to complain that on one night they're kind of doing a kid-like yeah, thing. Yeah, it's like the, the, it's like the young adult purge or something like that, right? Yeah. Anything goes on Halloween. Yeah. Get over it. I think it goes under the heading of pick the hill you want to die on. No and, kidding. Yeah, and I agree with you 100%, Greg, uh, criticizing teenagers for going out and, and being teenagers, uh, you know, and having some fun is not a bad thing at all. Like you say, as you know, Brett, you mentioned that uh, you know you were you were a taller kid, yeah. you know, when when you were younger, and 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 so there's a good reminder uh, for anybody who's answering the door to avoid having a kid go through that through some of his formative years. I don't know if it was an issue for you or not uh, as you got older, but, uh, you know, making any kid self-aware of what's going on, I think, is uh, is something we can all avoid as adults. USA Today did a column on this, why banning 13-year-olds from trick-or-treating on Halloween is ridiculous. And they posted a couple of tweets that are along some of the lines of what we've talked about here. One person saying, I'd rather have teens trick-or-treat than cause trouble. Yeah. And sometimes they're out helping a younger sibling. So how dumb is it not to allow 12 and over have candy? Another person says, I will personally greet anyone who shows up at my door for trick-or-treat with candy because I would much rather see them at my house than to see them committing crimes. We must remember that sometimes teens may not get to be kids when they are kids because of different situations. Mm -hmm. And then here's, this is something I never thought of. My wife is 36 and she has Asperger's and a very childlike nature about her. She likes to dress up to hand out candy, but she also likes to go around to close friends and neighbors to trick or treat. Let the teens be interesting. I never get any trick or treaters, so I, I honestly don't have a lot of strong opinions about this. It was trick like honestly, like twenty try five years and zero kids at the door. Try turning on a light; they yeah, might come maybe. to your door. I think it yeah. had a lot to do with me like hanging outside in front of my place, smoking all the time. But. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact that you never have any candy. I always have candy. I buy the candy I like because I know I'm the one that's going to end up eating it. Here, kids, here's some empty beer cans. <laughs> They're worth 10 cents. <laughs> it's, like, it's like UNICEF, Jack. I was just going like, to try to fit that in your UNICEF. Yeah. You don't hand out coins, you just hand out cans. Oh. One of our cans list- for UNICEF. One of our listeners wanted to chime in. Sorry, guys. It's not even amusing anymore. America is over. Well, here's the it's thing. not just America, uh, though. Bathurst, New Brunswick, two years ago, oh, come they, on. they installed a law where if you were over 16, I think you were banned from... Uh, oh, no, pardon me. Yeah, it was kids over than 14, and they had a 7 p.m. curfew. They've since revised the curfew. They've relaxed it to 8 p.m., and now it's kids over, older than 16 can't trick-or-treat. So everyone else has to walk around with ID proving they're younger than 16? If you're younger than 16, do you even have ID? Because you have a passport. Maybe. School card. Like, how's a nine-year-old supposed to prove to 
some cranky old man, how old he is, so he can get a little Snickers. Can't burnt. these communities focus on something important, like letting <laughs> pedestrians cross an intersection? Like, come on. <laughs> oh, it all oh. comes back to Portage and Maine for well, Greg Mackley. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that at 8.07. Yesterday, we teed up this wheelchair event where people had the opportunity to go sit on the wheelchair and try it out. So today we're going to find out how it went. So you can text us at 204-780-6868. Let us know what you think about the trick-or-treating thing. Fortier, how old were you when you stopped trick-or-treating? I believe 13. 13 is when I stopped. I saw but you I, at I, my I house shave. last year. I could shave, I could shave and I could still year. go. Yeah, I could shave and I could still pass as 12-year-old. Totally you a boy. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, uh, can you go out last this year then and get us a bunch of candy? Well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Okay. G-Mac, if you show up on my doorstep dancing like that, I'll give you two chocolate bars. Thank Apparently, you, Jeff has leftover candy, candy every year, so you no. just bring it to us. Like a, you know, one day that candy lasts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Time for the small town salute. Loren McNabb, where are we going this week? Well, the inspiration for this visit came from you, Brett, actually. A couple weeks ago, you went up to Lockport, had a nice meal, got me thinking, uh, you know, what's to offer in the town there? What do they have for diners and what do they have for events? And also, what do they have for fishing? We had a couple people text us this week and say the cooler temperatures actually make the fish bite. So we thought we'd uh, head up to Lockport and speak with uh, its mayor, George Pike, and he joins us on the phone now. Good morning, George. Good morning. So tell me a little bit about your community, because I know a lot of people might have passed through it on their way uh, up north or, or come back down through it, but why would you like people to stop and take a little tour around? Well, Lockport's located pretty well in the centre of uh, of St. Andrews, a community of the RM of uh, St. Andrews. So actually, the it's very important, it's very historic, and it's with the Lockport Dam in there controlling the water levels between Winnipeg and the Lake Winnipeg. But right now the fishing is very good, as you mentioned. Pickerel is running, I understand. I was there the other day watching the fishermen catching some nice pickerel. And, of course, it's a catfish area as well. Along that road to Lockport is the historic uh, drive on River Road to St. Andrew's Church, the rectory, Lower Fort Gary. So it's all contained in that one little area. But Lockport itself is a very, very interesting area to come. There's parks there. There's places to park and watch uh, scenes of the river running. So it's very, very tourism. Well, first question I have to ask you, George, have you ever considered changing your last name to Pickerel or Catfish? I've had a few comments about things like that over the years, but I like my name. Yes, I do. (laughs) It's a great name. Uh, Thanks for uh, playing along. And I I often call that drive uh, up to Lockport and then down kind of our Pacific Coast Highway. I know when I have people from out of town, we love to drive up and grab a hot dog. Half Moon is my favorite. And then go across the bridge and the dam, as you mentioned, and then take that drive down River Road. It is really spectacular. It's one of those places, and I hate saying it over and over again, but so often you catch yourself going, yeah, it's it's hard to believe I'm actually in Manitoba as I take this drive, because it is a beautiful, beautiful drive. Especially in the fall when you got the change of colors of the leaves, it's very, very pretty along there right now, and uh, that's one thing that people are coming right from Larder's Golf Course all the way out down to Lockport and even further into Selkirk. There's another one by Lower Fort Gary that's very historic as well. And the lo- as far as you mentioned the, the dam and the, the, the locks, it's controlling the weather, but what exactly are you doing? Like, why do you have to do that? Well, at one time, the uh, with the, all these ships going up and down the river, the, they've had to control the water level because of the different heights 
and uh, rapids along the river. So that's why they made the dam there to control the water levels right back to Winnipeg for the for the ships and the merchandise going back and forth to Lake Winnipeg. You mentioned the pickerel were jumping. How come this time of year you see more of those? We we speculated that it is too cold to too cold to fish until ice fishing season, but it seems like it's the opposite. It is. It is the. They're called greenback pickerel, so they're quite uh, quite a big pickerel, and uh, they come down the, the river. And to me, I don't know why, but I know in the fall at this time of year, even when the snow is flying, I see fishermen out there in their boats catching pickerel. So you've got half moon out there. You've got. Two Skinner's locations. How is it that two Skinner's locations that are basically like a, a pitching wedge uh, in distance from each other, how do they both survive? Well, one's on the one's right on the river location, we call it, and the other's on 44 Highway. So they catch the traffic both ways coming into Lockport and, of course, on the river itself. But uh, they both survive. It's very good food and famous for their hot dogs. Well, of course, you got Sonia's stand there, great French fries, and and oh, yeah, some Sonia's. other. Yeah, they've got lots of commerce really in in that part of the province that maybe uh, is underappreciated, Mayor. Yes, that's certainly true. Uh, I know I like the I like the hamburgers at Sony, Sony's also, but uh, uh, in the other area, they come in there and they fish there and they walk around and they enjoy the atmosphere and they enjoy the, right now with the pelicans, beautiful scenery as well. All right, Mayor George Pike from Lockport, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Now I need to go back to Lockport. I was going to say, do you have new inspiration for places to eat now? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I went to Half Moon last time, and they have the uh, the Beyond Burger there. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend's a vegetarian, uh, and she said it was delicious. So Would she I, eat pickerel or fish, or is that? No, no that's not on the table, because yep. that is, I mean, my in-laws brought that out to us last week, and oh boy. Fresh pickerel is so oh, nice. Nothing like it. Mm-hmm. Or what I forgot to do when I went was the drive on River Road. I knew I was forgetting something, and I just I forgot about it. We didn't make our way down there, so I guess I got to go back. Just even driving up Henderson out to Lockport, particularly in the fall, I find that it's just such a lovely, peaceful drive. It's and you actually can often get pumpkins on the roadside. That's what I was going to say. That's where I've purchased some pumpkins over the years, and Greg made a good point, and I don't often think about this when you have relatives coming and you always want to think, what can I show them this time? Or friends come come in and it's a cooler day and you maybe don't want to be outside, but the drive is nice, right? Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, gaffers, I'll give them a shout out as well. They, gaffers. They got some uh, good chow in the lounge there at Gaffers Catch the Game there. So, uh, yeah, it's really one of the more beautiful parts of this part of our province. And uh, I think if if I could do and live anywhere in southern Manitoba, I would live along the river in between Winnipeg and Lockport, just close enough to uh, Half Moon that I'd have to think twice about going there, <laughs> but close enough that I could go whenever I wanted and it wouldn't be a big deal. One of our listeners texting this morning that the walleye follow the warmer water from the north basin of Lake Winnipeg to the south this time of year, which might explain why we are seeing more of them bite. I can't dispute that. I know nothing about fishing. Oh yeah, because that's upstream. Because you always, always forget or you might forget that the Red River right. flows north. Thusly, Upper Fort Gary is in downtown Winnipeg and Lower Fort Gary is in Lockport.
Right now, we want to talk about Knickers and Kickers. It's a great event that Silo Mission organizes every year. It's next Thursday, October 18th. And in studio with us, we have Jim Bell from Silo Mission. Mr. Bell, good morning to you, sir. Good morning, and thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Knickers and Kickers, uh, this is an event that uh, last year, we, Greg and I were in the parking lot at Kildonan Place, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the generosity we saw on display last year was pretty staggering. It is staggering, and I thank you for bringing that up because it's events like this where Winnipeggers and Manitobans, they just demonstrate generosity and care uh, every time we do something like this. And the Knickers and Kickers is a a real example of that. Uh, Last year, you talked about being there, and we were talking about numbers a moment ago. So last year, uh, people had stopped by and and, uh, generously donated over 7,000 pairs of new socks and over 3,000 pairs of new underwear and cash. And I can tell the, all the listeners that that goes a long, long way because the, uh, the, the socks and underwear are a staple throughout the course of the year. And as we enter winter, it's certainly no exception. So big thank you to Winnipeggers and Manitobans for how they support the cause. Also one of those forgotten items, I think, the underwear, the socks. You know, we, when we pictured the clients that might come and go from Silo Mission, we're not always thinking about, you know, all the layers that one has to put yes. on. And when we forget about that item, we also forget with just the loss of dignity that might come when you when you don't have a fresh pair to put on in the morning. Well, the dignity piece that you just spoke about, that is huge. And it, it is something, and I know I'll speak personally, like it's just, it is something you take for granted. Uh, but the, 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 the fact of the matter is, it is something that year round, um, we, we, we go through a lot of pairs of socks and underwear, but it... So once again, it is, it's an urgent need throughout the course of uh, every month and as we, as we uh, approach the winter months. But once again, the uh, city of Winnipeg and, and the prov- province, other people throughout, they, they support it and we're just uh, we're very grateful. I want to commend uh, your organization, Jim, for the outreach that it does, not only with your clients, but to the young people in our community. My boys have been down there, I think, twice now. Mm -hmm. And when they come back, they have a different perspective on life in general. And when we're downtown... It's very seldom that they don't recognize somebody in terms of being, you know, experiencing homelessness and, and they'll have a story and they'll have a recollection of the time that they spent at Siloam. And I think that has a, a, a cascading effect through, throughout the community when you have little kids coming down and spending some time at, at, at your facility. You're absolutely right. And when, uh, when we see young people, when they, when they come in to serve, uh, a good example of that is in our kitchen, in our dining hall. And a few weeks ago, right around Thanksgiving, leading up to Thanksgiving was an example of that, where one of the school divisions was in with their culinary students. So their skill was on display, but when you see their energy and their, their desire to serve and to help those that are coming through uh, to, to get a hot meal. And the, the young people that come in, their, their energy passes through the organization. So, and as you say, it cascades. And, and you know, in Winnipeg, uh, I, I think it's fair to say it's a very caring and a very generous community. And it's more than just those of mature adult age. The, the, the young people that come to Siloam, I'm so appreciative that you brought that up because uh, we need the young people to be involved as well. Partly because, and I worry about this, we talked years ago about ending homelessness and putting a date on on the fact that potentially someday we could have a world we live in where this is not an issue. And the opposite appears to be happening. What what are the numbers right now in terms of the need and the number of clients you're seeing? Well, of course, the census, uh, the results of that just came out yesterday. 
And so I am, I am reading through the report as we speak. But you're right. The numbers are not going down, and they're not going down in Winnipeg. So there are challenges around that. But the one thing I want all your listeners to be aware of is, yes, there are challenges, but we also see opportunities. We see opportunities that we can help people transition and pro- progress. And those are two words that we use at Siloam as verbs now on a regular basis. So what does that mean? And in addition to all the core services that are provided at Siloam, we are paying very close attention to housing needs and the supports that people will need around housing. Social enterprise is another big one for us. It's right at the top of the list. And of course, mental wellness and mental illness and the situations with addictions in our community, uh, the, the situations with meth are well documented. We're paying very close attention to that, working with some very key partnerships in our community and organizations. And we look forward to taking those, those next steps, not alone, but collaboratively with those organizations, with levels of government, and with a community like Winnipeg and Manitoba. We believe that collaboratively and with a collective impact that we can reduce those numbers. So hopefully one day we're sitting here having a newscast and an interview where we're saying, you know, we're all out of work. Because uh, homelessness is no, now I know that's a big dream, but we have to start somewhere. Jim Bell is the chief executive officer of Silo Mission. Once again, Knickers and Kickers next Thursday, 680 CJOB and Global will be set up outside Kildonan Place. Our friends at Power 97 and Peggy at 991 will be here at Polo Park looking for new pairs of underwear and socks between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. I wonder if there's any zombies in those tales of speculative fiction. Well, it doesn't need to speculate because it's happening this weekend, Greg. Well, we've determined that you are our resident zombie expert, mm-hmm. Brett McGarry, mm-hmm. wow. in terms of the different level of zombies and what z- zombies are capable of. But we are <laughs> going to introduce you to somebody who obviously has a tremendous passion for not only zombies, but other sorts of live Action, and I forgot what the R stands for. Stands for role play. Role play. LARP, you may have heard it referred to. Luke Thiessen is joining us from the Frontier LARP, and you've got an incredible event, an fascinating, gigantic facility up in Gimli? Absolutely. Um, So we are using, uh, it's a former Royal Canadian Air Force Base. Uh, So it's a really, really cool building there. It's a dorm building. And uh, basically, yeah, you got hundreds of rooms in there, two floors, a very creepy old basement. uh, And it's just a perfect place uh, for this type of event. The description uh, on the Facebook page says, you and your friends are side by side in a dark hallway. A light flickers red. The only source of illumination is you make your way forward and then you freeze a dark figure at the end of the hallway appears and you say, hello. So you're walking into that room. Are you? Dre- are, we, are we supposed to come dressed up and then there's zombies? Like who's at the end of the hallway? So it's zombies at the end of the hallway. <laughs> you don't have to dress up. If you want to, you're free to. Um, but uh, our zombies are going to be done up in professional makeup. Uh, and we retrofit the whole building. We black out all the windows. We had our own, you know, colored lighting and effects and sound effects in there. Uh, so it's going to be, you know, fully uh, filled out. A zombie-infested facility is the idea, and then we fight to the death till we get out, kind of thing. In, uh, a, in a role play scenario. And so um, <laughs> inside the building, there's going to be a bunch of different puzzles which you have to solve. Uh, you and your friends are being hired to go in there and gather information. Uh, and so your goal is to collect CDs while, of course, fending off all the zombies. 
So what do you get to use to fend off said zombies? Right, so we're going to be giving you guys Nerf blasters. They shoot foam darts, uh, and you're going to use those to shoot off the zombies. When you hit the zombies, they will actually fall to the ground and die. Uh, as you go along, you're going to have to find ammo drops to reload those things uh, and uh, keep battling your way through. Uh, Loren, this sounds perfect for you. You probably have some extra ammo kicking around your house. I got a lot of Nerf guns in our house. I'm not so sure that myself or my kids might not be scared in this. Is there an age requirement that you would suggest in uh, terms so we always recommend 12 and up. Uh, that's basically our recommendation, yeah. Now, when it comes to killing zombies, you know, mm-hmm. everyone knows you got to shoot them in the head. Oh, really? But you don't want to, yeah, yeah, because the, the infection's in their brain. That's what keeps them going. See, I did not know that. Yeah. Right. Okay. But so, you don't want to be shooting, like, do you, do you shoot the, the, the that's zombies a, that's in the head? That's a great point. Uh, so in our game, our lore is that our zombies are moving because their hearts are pumping. They don't have brain activity. Uh, so we say you got to shoot them in the chest. And that's, of course, so we're not getting our staff shot in the face over. <laughs> and over. <laughs> so have, have we done some training for this in advance to this event? Like, how does everyone prepare? Right, for absolutely. The so a lot of our uh, a lot of our team are regulars who have been to many of our events. So they've got you know some of them years of experience under their belt at being zombies uh, and terrifying survivors. Uh, we also, of course, have a training session before each shift uh, where we go through a PowerPoint presentation. You know, cover everything that what's the do's and do nots of being a zombie, uh, and then uh, we put them into the game zone. Sorry, there are. Do- Do's and do do nots. What what's a do not of being a zombie? A do not of being a zombie. Uh, we teach things like you know don't hassle the same group over and over <laughs> again. Uh, don't break character. Things like that. Okay, so Luke, uh, I'm a little bit of an entrepreneur, so I as much as I like this idea of this live action role play, it sounds fascinating. You've turned this into a business. Absolutely. I'm, I'm very impressed. Well, thank Tell you. me how you've done that. Uh, so our goal uh, has been to take uh, the hobby of LARP, which is something we're very passionate about, and turn it into something that's more accessible to the general public. Uh, so this event is very much structured. You don't need any past experience. You don't need to understand you know, what LARP means. You show up, uh, and we provide you with everything, and we give you an experience. Uh, and so that's how we've tried to structure a lot of our events, is to make them very open to the public that way. Do you think that the, the fact that like there are a lot of events now for Halloween, mm-hmm. all sorts of haunted houses, and, and people are, you know, uh, down the Vert Museum, you spoke to them, Greg and Loren, on Monday about how they sort of creep up their museum. So there's all kinds of stuff to do for Halloween. Yes. So how do you sort of carve out... Uh, your own little niche. Absolutely. In this uh, so there's a lot of great events out there, but what's unique about our event uh, is you get to fight back here. This isn't just you walk through and people jump out and scare you and you just kind of wind your way through. Here you get to explore the building at your own pace. You can go any direction you want. There's no written path. Uh, and of course, you get to actually fight back against the zombies. There's a lot of people already signed up for this event, which starts, is it tomorrow? Starts tomorrow, absolutely. So how many people do you have ready to go, and how many tickets do you have left? Uh, so we got about 350 people signed up right now, uh, and we could definitely fit a couple hundred more. Uh, so if you want to get your tickets, uh, you can still get them online. If my kids were old enough, I'd just drop them off, I think. This is, like, <laughs> this is basically the game. Absolutely. We, this is what we play in the basement almost every night, chasing each other around with yep, Nerf guns, for right? Sure. So. It, well, it sounds like a little bit of a combination of an escape room and then that kind of that live action yes. role playing that that sort of a combination of those two where 
you know, I, I think we were at the Harry Potter picnic where they were where they were playing. What is that game that they play in Harry Quidditch. Potter? Yes. Yeah. So people were playing that, but then of course there were people organizing that were very mm-hmm. much in the role, and it was like, yeah, okay, it's a line too far for me, but this just feels like it's it's a nice amalgamation mm-hmm. uh, of 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 people who just want to have fun, and others who are going to have a blast imitating and and living like exactly. zombies a couple yeah, hours you can at a time. Put in as much as or as little as you want. Yeah. Are they one of our listeners, Kevin the Garbage Man, wants to know? Uh, and this sort of piggybacks on a conversation we had earlier. Are they fast or slow zombies? Ah, so we have a variety. Most of our zombies are your typical slow zombies, uh, but we have a few special types in there who are going to have some uh, props and stuff with them, called like larger costuming that are going to be faster. Oh wow, that's scary. See, I, I just so many things I'm learning this morning about zombies. Right? <laughs> I didn't know you had to shoot them in the head, and then Brett had pointed out that depending on which show you watch, there's yep. different kinds. Absolutely. Who might come yeah. after you. I always pictured the slow walking ones. No, which, they're which, not all slow <laughs> yeah the day of the dawn of the dead uh those ones would get you really fast yeah and we got some real big ones in there too so what happens if the when you if you are if you don't successfully fend off the zombie if you right miss so fire. uh you have three life points uh and every time a zombie gets you with a two-hand tag you're gonna lose one of those uh and if you lose all three you are infected uh <laughs> and you're still gonna get to play through the rest of your time in the game zone but there's gonna be some consequences at the end of the game for that oh wow you have really thought all of this out. absolutely i yeah. love it <laughs> the website is frontierlarp.com you got and you it can find the event uh there zombie outbreak it's also on facebook zombie outbreak 2018 and uh, luke Thiessen, manager of the frontier larp limited thank you so much for coming in to tell us about this this sounds like a blast absolutely well thanks so much for having me guys it's a two-hour event there are time slots throughout the weekend it runs from tomorrow through sunday in gimli The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.